drinking tonight. Is it Becky drinking tonight? Not drinking tonight. Oh, I'm not drinking tonight. Oh, you're joking. She's not drinking tonight. Yeah, right. Pardon? Who? Happy Halloween and welcome back everyone to Becky's Not Drinking Tonight, my not so glamorous journey to sobriety. I am your host, Beck, and I am so excited to be back and to be sharing with you more of my cringeworthy drunken tales. But first, how have the last four weeks been? Good? COVID safe? Well, I hope so. I spent the last four weeks not writing the second instalment in my novel series, but hey, at least I started the marketing campaign for this podcast, so, you know, I suppose it was a tad productive, albeit not in the way I wanted it to be. The truth is, I really needed the last four weeks to give my mental health a break, because these episodes are quite heavy for me and require a certain amount of strength and resilience to delve into those dark pages of my history and dish them out for the world to hear, or, you know, the five people who probably listen to this. Either way, I'm feeling much better now than I have in a while, and it's also been a great source of inspiration for today's episode, which is titled, Becky's Not Drinking Tonight Because She Needs to Focus on Her Health. Of course, the usual disclaimers apply. This podcast contains some of the big nasty stuff in the world, such as suicide, depression, child abuse, and of course, binge drinking. So if it doesn't sound like your cup of tea, I'd recommend turning it off now. But with that said, let's get started. Can you remember the first time in your life you were sick? Like, sick to the point of needing hospitalisation? I mean, most kids break an arm or a leg or get bad chicken pox or have a bad case of the flu. Me? Well, my first memory of being so sick I needed hospital was when I was five or six. It was summer and I'd been playing outside in the heat all day because I refused to be stuck inside playing with dolls like the good girls did. No way, I loved being outside playing with my brother and getting as muddy and dirty as possible. I also refused to listen to my mother when she told me to drink water. To be fair, water in my hometown seriously tastes like frogs have been breeding in it. Anyway, I ended up becoming so dehydrated I passed out. It was also the first time I remember being truly embarrassed by my bodily excretions, as I had a doctor that reminded me of Prince Eric and the Little Mermaid, and I somehow managed to ship my pants and vomit in perfect unison right in front of him when he was doing his rounds. Then there was a time in grade one where I ended up being sent home time and time again because I somehow always managed to forget to look where I was walking. I get so stuck in conversation that I would run into poles, trees and sometimes the odd person or two. I ended up with concussion after concussion. This pattern of somehow ending up hurt or sick somehow, somewhere in my mind, triggered a realisation of sorts. My mother seemed to pay attention to me when I was sick or injured. And it wasn't the bad type of attention that I was usually used to. It was a caring kind of attention. I mean, at least for the 10 or so minutes that teachers or medical professionals were around. As someone who craved her mother's love and attention, this seemed to be a pretty sure way to get it, even if it was so momentarily. Funnily enough, when my dad got custody of us, my favourite book at his place was the St John's First Aid Manual. As a 10-year-old, this was a fascinating book on all the things that one can be sick with and how to fix their ailments. It was also around this time that my best friend loved Eminem and we spent endless Saturdays listening to the Eminem show and memorising the lyrics. It was listening to Cleaning Out My Closet that opened my eyes to a condition that I had otherwise been unaware of, that being at Munchausen Syndrome or Munchausen by proxy, such as Eminem's mother had. 
It's safe to say that while his mother had Munchausen by proxy, forcing her children to be sick so she could get attention for being a great mother, my mother had the exact opposite, not taking any injury or illness seriously until someone else forced her to take one of us to a doctor. For instance, in one incident, she smashed my little brother's head into a railway sleeper we had lining our garden beds, and he started convulsing uncontrollably. She didn't think there was anything to be worried about and told him to stop carrying on. My father, on the other hand, rushed him to hospital to get him treated for what could have been a deadly condition. Then there was a time my little sister fell off her bike and fell on a sharp rock that cut so deeply into her knee you could see the cartilage. When she finally returned to my dad after two weeks with my mother, we noticed this disgusting smell and uncovered a band-aid covering a pus-infested, almost gangrenous wound. When we rushed her to the hospital immediately, the doctor was shocked something like this could go unnoticed for so long and remarked that if we had left it even a few days longer, it may have been too infected to save. I mean, there was also the time that my dad almost severed his pinky finger using a circular saw and he had to drive himself to the hospital because my mother said it was just a cut. Personally, for myself, the most blaringly obvious time that my mother did not take my health seriously was when I was 10 or 11. I visited my dad's sister and my two favourite cousins, who were like sisters to me, up in North Queensland. I came back from the weekend severely bloated and barely able to even open my eyes. Imagine the Michelin man, but as a young preteen girl who otherwise was underweight and gangly skin and bones. My mother, being the recovering anorexic and body perfectionist she was, just claimed that my dad had fed me too much junk food and that I was just fat now, like him. After some excellent internet sleuthing on my dad's part, he suggested that I had a serious kidney infection which basically saw my kidneys stop working and my body retaining all fluids. Once again, it was a situation that was potentially quite dangerous if it was left unattended. It almost seems that as if somewhere in my mother's mind she lost touch with the part that focuses on caring for others and knowing when someone is in serious danger. So what does this all have to do with drinking? Well, apart from the obvious trauma I tried to recover from by using alcohol when I was older, it seemed that if I couldn't get my mother's love and attention one way, I could try drinking myself into oblivion, ending up in hospital, and hoping that maybe she would pop up and suddenly care for me or be there for me. The problem is, she never was. But I did notice that other people seemed to care when I ended up sick or in hospital. So maybe, just maybe, I had found a way to cheat the system and get love and affection without having to rely on actually being sick. Unfortunately for me, I did end up sick numerous times from actual issues that further degraded my mental well-being. During my years of menstruating, I had excruciating pain so bad that I couldn't walk. I spent days in bed crying and I was unable to eat. This didn't really matter while I was at school, and my father just thought I had painful periods. After all, he did ground me when I got my first period because he thought that I could suddenly get pregnant and would go out and try and get pregnant. But when I began working full-time, having to miss a day or two each month from work because of this pain became a really big issue. After several different doctors, laparoscopies and examinations, it was finally determined when I was 19 that I had endometriosis. They went in and burned out what they could, and, you know, that really didn't bother me that much. No one was there during my operation, nor was it a massive deal to anyone around me. But for me, the news that endometriosis would severely impact my ability to fall pregnant left me feeling as though I was an incomplete and worthless woman. I already felt useless and worthless 99% of the time, but to hear that biologically the one thing you're meant to be able to do 
The one job you're meant to fulfill for your species while on this earth is something you can't do made me feel a different level of useless. Simply put, if I was an animal, I probably would be left to die alone as I wouldn't be a viable mating partner and therefore would be wasting resources for the group. I know that this is a very simplistic way of looking at things and completely diminishes the hundreds of years of women's rights we've been fighting for, not to mention the women who choose not to have kids or the women who don't have the same reproductive system. But to me, it was almost the most basic proof I needed to further my belief that I was a flawed human being that no one would ever want to love. This drove me into a series of drinking to forget the state of my womanly parts and being as promiscuous as possible because I so desperately wanted to feel loved, to feel whole and to feel as though I had power and control over my life. Of course my drinking didn't help my underlying kidney issue and I was hospitalized a handful of times in my late teens and early 20s because I had excruciating pain in my lower back. It took a while but the doctors discovered I had a duplex kidney on my right side, i.e. I had two filtering systems in one kidney. Of course, the two biggest pieces of advice they gave me was one, stop drinking, and two, drink more water. And guess what? I paid attention to them for a week or two. Actually, maybe only a weekend. Point was, I was like, hey, this is shit, and I want to feel better about it. So why don't I drink to make myself feel happy? I mean, it works all the other time, so it makes sense, right? Then a few years later, I had ongoing pain in my lower abdomen. I think I spent about four weeks in hospital in excruciating pain. I swear I became a human pincushion as doctors were trying to constantly inject me with pain relief. They ended up putting in a butterfly clip which meant I no longer had to be injected in my stomach, but for a good month they had no idea what was going on. I finally had an operation where they stuck a camera down my throat into my intestines and took some samples from my stomach. The funnest part of this story was that when they finally had my results and I was out of hospital, the doctor had to legitimately Google my condition. Yeah, that filled me with so much confidence. Anyway, turns out I had pancreatic polyps growing in my stomach lining. At this point in time, you'll notice a bit of a pattern happening here of me having extra bits and pieces that don't really make sense. It became an ongoing joke in my family that I had swallowed my twin or absorbed them in the womb and here they were trying to get out of my body. My mother had told me when I was young that I was a twin but my twin died in the womb. I don't really believe that this is the case as now that I'm trying to get pregnant I highly doubt my mother would be able to hide something like that from my father or surely there would have been some medical record of it somewhere. But either way it became a running joke in my family that I had this other person inside me. They ended up being called Vincent, and they were my evil twin, and they came out when I was drunk. Anyway, back to the pancreas growing inside my stomach. Essentially, at one point or another, I googled what this meant, and guess what? It meant cancer. I mean, everything you google ends up being cancer, but I was convinced this was true, that I had this cancerous cells growing in my stomach, and I was going to die before I turned 30. So, of course, the only way to calm my nerves and get me through my final years of living was to drink. Then my evil twin came out again a few years after that when I had this horrible heart racing condition which turned out to be this secondary vessel that isn't uncommon in people and just means that sometimes you might feel flutters in your chest or feel as though your heart skips a beat. It wasn't anything major but it was enough for me to turn it into a melodrama and a woe is me episode of my life. It really wasn't a big deal but I was always torn between being in a state of mind that I don't want people to worry about me to I just want to be looked after and cared for. 
If you take into consideration my physical injuries over the years from playing hockey and doing cheerleading, there are so many more instances where I ended up in hospital on crutches and wheelchairs, getting scans and visiting doctors on a semi-regular basis. I feel for my friends who were probably always just waiting on the end of the phone for the next incident I managed to get myself into. I mean, I've never had more than a handful of available sick days at any job I've worked at. And the truth is, I think a lot of it comes down to this yearning to be cared for by my mother. I mean, it's almost synonymous with motherhood, that a woman is to be nurturing and caring, and yet mine was anything but. So I think, while I don't have Munchausen's, I definitely am a hypochondriac, but I also put myself in dangerous or risky situations because some part of me thinks that it will magically provide that love and affection I've been so desperately seeking by going back to the most basic trigger for it. Sickness. It also explains my vitriol for people who haven't been there for me when I genuinely needed them. For instance, when I was getting electroconvulsive therapy in hospital for four months when I was 22, I felt so isolated and alone when certain family members weren't able to be there or didn't call. I held it against friends for years that failed to visit me in the psychiatric ward after I'd attempted suicide or was in there for severe depression. To this day, I hold that grudge. I don't think these people loved or cared for me. I think they couldn't be there at the most basic time that I needed them and therefore they don't deserve to be in my life. But I'm also starting to learn that not everyone can be there for you during those days. That perhaps seeing someone you love and care about moments after they've essentially decided to end their life is fucking hard. Because I suppose somehow it reflects on those around them. It makes those people feel as though they aren't enough to will this person to continue living and facing that is really difficult. I really struggled to, well, struggle to understand that sometimes people need to look after themselves first and sometimes that means not visiting someone in a mental ward because it would quite potentially do more harm to them than good. That it's not a demonstration of their lack of empathy or care but it's about something bigger and really probably has very little to do with their feelings towards me. Most recently I've been wondering on this whole infertility issue I'm facing. See, I was dealt a second blow to my reproductive system when I was told in 2015 that I had polycystic ovary syndrome, or as I like to call it, exploding eggs. I feel like I'm back at square one with my reproductive health, and it's been so fucking terrible for my mental health. When I found out I had this condition and that there was essentially little that could be done to counteract it, I pushed my boyfriend away. I would get wasted, spend hours crying and telling him to find someone who could give him kids because that wouldn't be me kind of felt like a huge slap in my face that here I was finally madly in love and sure I wanted to live my life with this incredible man and I wasn't able to be the wife he needed me to be. My insecurities were working double time as I dealt with the news and even now it's something that is constantly on my mind that perhaps he should be with someone who can give him children because spending a thousand dollars a month on ovulation induction treatment and being disappointed each time it doesn't work is not what he should have to deal with. I feel like it's my burden and my burden alone and I push him away, shut him out and try my best to just act as if it's fine. That next month will be different. Here's the truth. It breaks my heart each time and it's not something I'd wish on my worst enemy. People who have me on social media often remark at how brave I am for being open and honest about my struggles but some part of me wonders if I'm open and honest because I'm once again seeking that sympathy or caring from sources that somehow emulate a mother's love. 
I wonder if I'm self-sabotaging because though I'm not drinking to cope with the stress of not falling pregnant, I'm genuinely not looking after myself either. My God, I have put on 15 kilos in the past year, largely due to stress eating and not giving a fuck because if I get pregnant, I'll be fat anyway. But as anyone will tell you, poor diet is such a big part of conceiving and depression, stress and anxiety accumulate to also inhibit the chances as well. So rather than dealing with this as a healthy human being, I'm wallowing in self-pity and chocolate mousse. I know I'm not the only one during this whole COVID period who has really struggled with their health, both physically and mentally, but I do feel grateful that I'm not using alcohol as a vice to get through this shitstorm of a year. I genuinely get worried when I look at Facebook and every second person is on about how they are drinking each day to get through, hoping they can drink themselves to the end of COVID. I totally get that we have to do whatever it takes to live and survive, but at what cost? And what happens when this is all over? Do these people use alcohol as that ongoing vice for anything shitty in the world? Because that's what I worry about. I worry that during COVID, it's been a perfect time to fall back on old crutches and vices and rely on unhealthy coping mechanisms to get through. Then you've got people like my best friend who somehow managed to stay super healthy and fit and not use alcohol as a coping mechanism. And um, she also works in healthcare. Yeah, some days I really hate her, but for the most part, I admire her resilience and ability to always do the mentally healthy and right thing. I suppose now that Melbourne is almost officially out of lockdown, it's time to retrain our brains into healthy habits, to not let COVID-induced anxiety and depression continue any further than it has. Because quite frankly, this year has been the shittiest year in recent history for most people, and I personally am happy to move on and get back into looking after my body, my health, and my mind. In fact, starting tomorrow, I'm back at boot camp, so these love handles and thunder thighs are going to hopefully take their own little vacation as they've occupied my body for too long now. Writing this episode, the one thing that has stood out to me is that if you're not mentally healthy, you're not going to be physically healthy either, and vice versa. It's so easy to say, what's the point? And trust me, I did that for years, and I let alcohol sabotage my health, my sanity, my appearance, and my well-being for far too long. Because to be honest, since I've been sober, the only issues I've had with my health are surrounding my infertility. And to be fair, this is the first year I've only spent two brief stints in hospital. Most years, I'm usually in double digits for hospital visits because I just fail to look after myself, believing I'm not worth it or I'm overreacting about something minor because I just so want someone to nurture and care for me and yet push my husband away whenever he tries because goddamn, my mind is constantly telling me that I don't deserve it while begging for it like a drug. Once again, as with most of these episodes, you'll notice that I didn't stop drinking and suddenly become a shining example of human togetherness. I'm still very flawed, still very much in progress, and still trying to be a better person each day. But that's what sobriety is about. It's about having a clear mind to at least focus on these things, rather than deciding that they are too hard and drinking to forget or to stop worrying. And that's that. The end of episode 6 of Becky's Not Drinking Tonight. I want to point out that if anyone is struggling mentally, please just reach out to someone, anyone, to ask for help and assistance. Most of us have had that same shitty year and feel as badly about how we've treated our health as each other. But you know what? We can get through this and we can move forward with our lives and focus on the future full of mentally healthy and physically happy lifestyles. 
I'm really happy to be back with this podcast and we have four more episodes left for the year. The next episode will be titled Becky's Not Drinking Tonight on Her Birthday. I mean, my birthday is in May, but it's always been a sore point and drunken fueled haze for me. So it felt like it deserved a spot in this season. So watch out for that in two weeks time on Friday, the 13th of November. In the meantime, have a happy Halloween and look after yourself.